news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Welcome everyone to another episode of Books with Hooks. This is a really special one because we have the author here with us today. Welcome, Johnny. Thank you so much for joining us. It is really fun to be here. I'm excited. Well, thank you so much for being here. And can you kick us off by reading us your query letter? Yes, I can. All right. So the query letter, Dear Carly and the Shit, I hope this letter finds you well. I am writing to introduce my alternate historical thriller titled This Land of Grace, completed at 85,000 words. This dual POV has the cold knife dialogue of DeWitt's sisters' brothers and the violently dusty borderland tones of McCarthy's No Country for Old Men. Memphis, 1955. Elvis never changed the world by walking through the doors at Sun Studios. His musical aspirations were shattered by the untimely death of his mother. Two mournful years later, he's back on the Memphis scene, an up-and-comer, the next rock and roll star. He falls for Rose, but their love attracts the unwanted attention of a notorious gangster who wants Rose as his own. In a life-altering moment, Elvis must take matters into his own hands, after which escape from Memphis is his only chance of survival. He makes his departure on a westbound freight train. Our second protagonist is Carmen, a brilliant eight-year-old girl living in an orphanage in Juarez, Mexico. Harassed by a cruel nun, Carmen yearns for a new family. 
anywhere but the orphanage, but she is betrayed by someone there, someone with a secret responsibility for her well-being. She is promised a new life. She is led and sold like a sheep into the clutches of a sinister child trafficking gang of hobos. Riding the rails, Elvis befriends an old toothless hobo named Knut, and they cross knives with this same sinister hobo gang and rescue a kidnapped American girl named Sarah, the daughter of a wealthy drug smuggler named Hero. As gratitude, Hero gives them work, and Elvis sees easy money, a way back to his musical dreams, but he soon discovers there is another girl, one that has been sold down the gruesome stream into the cages of pure evil. Carmen uses her secret talents and smarts to survive. Elvis follows a trail that Carmen has left behind, leading to a crossroads where his very soul at stake, where his past desires are outweighed by the sacrifices required to fight for the innocent. But things are never as they seem, and the devil is always in disguise. If he can survive and save Carmen, the world will be a more beautiful place with him living on it. I believe Land of Grace will sell with a broad adult readership. I have included the five opening pages for your review and welcome the opportunity to provide the complete manuscript. Thank you for considering my work. This is my second completed novel. I have attached the first five pages below. Word count above 439. Sincerely, Johnny. Thank you so much, Johnny, and how helpful that you provided us with the word count. Carly, what did you think of that query letter? Well, firstly, I know it's very nerve-wracking coming on the show, so thank you so much for joining us. These are some of my very favorite episodes because we get to kind of ask you questions and, you know, create some dialogue and point at some holes and, and kind of get into it. So thank you for, for coming on. So I will, I'll kind of just give you my review here. So I read this a few times, and the first time I read it, I felt like I was really focused on the literary elements of it because the comps were really literary. And then the next time I read it, I was like seeing the connections more between the kind of like more Western elements of it. And then again, I was talking with Cece before we started recording and I was thinking about like, oh, I think it's kind of literary. And then she's like, I don't think he positions it as literary. Like he positions it as alternate historical thriller. And then then I read it that time, like again, as we were reading it right now, I was more thinking about the the mention of like the devil and kind of more of the underworld and those darker tones to it. So I think this is a very layered project and very layered projects are very hard to pitch and kind of like put the pin on it. So I do think the alternate historical is interesting. That's a very interesting hook, right? Because it's like, we know, all know what happened, but what if it happened this way? I think that's very interesting. And I think that is the type of thing that can set more literary projects apart. But again, you position this more as a thriller, which I, which I think is interesting. So your comps are pretty heavy hitters, right? So Sisters Brothers, No Country for Old Men. I will be perfectly honest with you. These are those type of books where everybody knows them, but I haven't read them. So I don't know if there's any musical elements to these. From my understanding, there isn't. So this is leaning more on that like Western literary genre blending type of positioning, which is fine. But I was like, okay, that was interesting that I didn't really think there was like a musical connection here, which leads me to think you're not going to be focusing on the musical elements necessarily of his story. But then when I got to the pages, we'll get to that later, but we start with the music, which again, I thought was... I thought was interesting. Okay, I overall really feel like this is pretty synopsis heavy in terms of like this happens and then this happens and then this happens. I would like some examples, you know, you have anywhere but the orphanage, but she is betrayed by someone there. And then it's like she is promised a new life, period. Like these are really short staccato sentences where a pitch just wouldn't be like a back cover copy, jacket copy just wouldn't really be written in that type of way. So I would really try to focus on more the pitch than the protagonist. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you about 
where I stopped reading, like as if like, you know, when I'm an agent, like if I was going to be like, um, this is the part where I'm going to stop, I would have stopped reading at the riding the rails. Because by that point, I understand we're in an alternate history. I understand we have two points of view. What else do I need to know after that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, you, by that word count, I should know what's going on. I should know what's interesting about this. I should have gotten to those like major plot issues, the stakes of it all, why it matters. Why does he want to save the world? Do you know what I mean? Like, I should have been able to get to that by that point. By the time we get to riding the rails, I think you, an agent is either in or out. And so those are just wasted words because they're not doing anything. Because again, an agent would either be like, this is interesting, Elvis, historical, immediate, you know, request, or it's going to be like, this book's not for me, rejection, you know? So like, by the time we get there, those are just honestly wasted words. So that's why I want to tell you, like, that would be the point where I'd be like, I'd already know yes or no by that point. So lastly is you didn't have an author bio, which I thought was kind of interesting because for a project like this, where... I'm assuming you're a passionate fan or you know a lot of his like discography or you know biography in terms of knowing his history. You also have two protagonists. So I would want to know culturally, you know, if there was any alignment with either protagonist. And yeah, I don't know. I just felt like I didn't know anything about you. So I would really just encourage you to figure out what you want to say about your author bio sometimes and you know this is me projecting and we can talk about it it's just like you know you said this is your second completed novel sometimes you're just probably like oh that's all i have to say this is my second book and you know i don't have an author bio maybe but i would just encourage you to figure out is there something you can say about the inspiration behind the book or you know what i mean just like give it if, if there is no like I've been publishing this, that, and the other, which you don't have to have those types of credentials. We can massage that and lean into maybe some inspiration or, you know, and again, coming back to the worldview, you know, because you have Carmen as an 18 year old Mexican child, potentially you might need a sensitivity reader for that point of view. And that could be where you could be like, oh, you know, and I've done a sensitivity read, you know what I mean? So like there, there is an opportunity to build out a more of an authorly bio if Again, I'm projecting and we could talk about it, you know, if there isn't anything else that you want to put in there. Cece, did you have any notes that I didn't get to? I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned you wouldn't need the third paragraph because that's the paragraph where their storylines come together. And I always need storylines coming together in dual POV stories. So for, for my taste, this is just one of those situations where, you know, it really just depends on each person's taste. And this query letter is addressed to Carly. So, so go with Carly's advice. But I would want to see like, where do the worlds collide? And that could be one line with the worlds colliding as opposed to all the other lines. I will say that for me, it read like there was one protagonist. I know you told us there were two. You literally say our second protagonist. But the thing about Carmen is that things keep happening to her. And I don't really see her having protagonism. I know she's eight, but in my opinion, it's still important to show protagonism, even if only in interiority. What, is, what are her dreams? What are her aspirations? What does her future look like in her mind versus what it could look like if she doesn't get what she wants? And another reason why I felt like you weren't conveying a lot of her protagonism is because of the last line. If he can survive and save Carmen, the world will be a more beautiful place with him living on it. And I was thinking, well, with Carmen too, right? Like it's not just about him. Like he's great. He's Elvis. I'm a fan. <laughs> but but if we have two of them, we need to give both of them protagonism. I don't know if that makes sense to you. And this is where you get to like tell us what we missed, ask us questions. Now we're, we're, we're turning it over to you. 
I just want to add, I want to add one thing to what Cece was saying about the last paragraph. Yes, I don't, I would stop reading there, but we do need the colliding of the worlds and we need to know why they all came together. So I wouldn't just like cut it off there. I'd be like, how can I sum this up in a way that is appropriate at that word count of approximately where Carly would have stopped reading? Okay, turning it over to you, Johnny. Yeah, no, I, I she doesn't share the same, you know, screen time as, as Elvis in this movie. She's more of a kind of a tensioner and a clock for him. But there are scenes that, so she's written in third person close. She has her own scenes and her own standalone scenes. And, you know, she does, she does do stuff. <laughs> she is a protagonist there. But yeah, I, I was kind of thinking that maybe she shouldn't even be in the query letter. She's not the main character. She is a character, but at the same time, she's the only other character that does get her own point of view. So you're saying that her parts are third close, right? Correct. So, yeah. I mean, we'll get into the pages later, but you have him in first. Yeah. So therefore, that's an interesting shift in point of view. So we, anyway, we can talk about that when we get to the pages. But yeah, was there anything else from the query letter that you were, that you were thinking that you wanted to discuss? Yeah, I think that those are all great points. I, I think that I haven't sold a single book in my life. So I'm, you know, willing to lift, uh, obviously listen to you guys. And that's kind of why I don't really go into the you know, the author bio, I guess, is just like, you know, I'm, I'm an inspiring author. I, I, I want to sell millions, but not there yet. Yeah. So I would talk about the inspiration for the book. So tell us, like, how did you come up with this idea? Why Elvis? So he, this guy, he came from a, my first book, I was just writing uh, as a potential kind of a character in my first book. So my first book was set in the 1950s as well. So now I got to get, once this is done, I got to get out of the, the 1950s loop that I'm in. But yeah, so he was a, a character and he was just going to kind of be a hobo, like a rock and roll hobo that comes in on the train and adds some interesting things. And he just wasn't working out with that book. But I definitely, I put him aside and I said, this is very interesting. And then later on, I, I said, okay, well, you know, this could be Elvis. This could be him. If, you know, it just kind of, it came to me and I wasn't an Elvis fan. I mean, I am an Elvis fan, but I'm not a huge diehard Elvis fan. But learning more about Elvis in this book and, you know, just actually... You know, I listened to, I started listening to a lot of his music. I listened to his interviews. I read about him uh, just to kind of get an idea of who he was and who he is. And I decided, yeah, this is Elvis. I'm just going to go with it. It doesn't have to be Elvis. And that's actually one of the questions I'm going to ask you guys is, you know, it could be, I was thinking, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud here. It could be, you know, Elvis was born with, for example, a twin brother who died at birth. So one of the alternate kind of historic histories that I was thinking is like, that, that's the twin brother that makes it. And Elvis does not make it out of the womb. That's really interesting. So it doesn't have to be him. And, you know, I was thinking kind of that for an IP related issues coming down the line, if this is ever going to be a thing, you know, you can make it position it that way. Yeah, so. that's really interesting. Yeah, I like the fact that it's like, because when you started that sentence and I was like, oh, no, he's going to completely change the book. I like that it was still an alternate history of this you know, unfortunate sibling that never, you know, was able to live, right? So yeah, I think that's interesting. I would, if you feel strongly that this is Elvis, I would continue with it. I don't know. I don't really have a strong feeling other way other than, I guess I do. I guess I actually, I guess I do have a strong feeling. I would keep it as Elvis because I think the grabby hook only works because it's Elvis. Because otherwise you have to say like, you know, Elvis's brother. And then it like gets a little bit farther from the, I don't know, pop culture chain a little bit. So I'm going with Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> going with Elvis. Well, there, yeah, I think, I think it, it makes a little bit more sense. The only other thing I will say is 
obviously there has been the movie about him. I think there's another movie with like Priscilla coming out. So there is a lot of zeitgeisty things about him, which can be good and which can be bad sometimes, right? Because sometimes there's a bit of like market saturation on that pulp culture moment, or sometimes like there's a hunger for it. So I do think you're going to run into some timing issues, potentially, you know, have you started querying this yet? I guess I should ask you that. I haven't, no. Yeah. So I I don't know when the Priscilla movie comes out, but I would be pitching this like before Priscilla because this is like after Elvis movie. It was called Elvis, right? And then I think the Priscilla movie is just called Priscilla. So I would be pitching this if it's ready. I would be pitching it before Priscilla. So that doesn't seem it's like that you're like, not only you're after the Elvis movie, you're also after the Priscilla movie. Do you know what I mean? Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Now let's move on to the pages. Johnny, will you give us an overview of what happens on those first five pages? Okay. So it starts out with a timestamp, 1955, Memphis. We don't know it's Elvis, but, you know, it's Elvis. Well, it starts out about this legend. He talks about this legend of a blues man who who sold his soul out on the crossroads to to become the greatest guitar player in the world. And Elvis sits on the couch. He's backstage. He's got a big show. And he's thinking about this blues man and this legend. And, and if he would if he would trade his soul to the devil to not feel these pre-show, you know, nerves and that he has and, and they're... It, seems like he's really struggling with them in this and he is there's lots of screaming on stage like in in the seats there's lots of girls that have come in and they're getting lots of fans and and this is just kind of a a new thing for him and and he feels like it's really piling on to him he's doing some small talk with the theater owner and and he's kind of you know saying yeah he's getting ripped off but he's going to just allow that for now because, you know, he's an up-and-comer. He's an up-and-coming rock and roller. A woman comes through the backstage. It's Rose. It's it's his girlfriend. And she's colored. And you can tell right away that, you know, he cares for her a lot. They sneak off. or They have a quick discussion. And they sneak off backstage. And they, uh, they make love behind the curtains. And they lay there for a moment and just kind of have a moment where... They just kind of have a discussion and enjoy the moment and listen to the wild screams of, of the girls past the curtains. Then on a whim, Elvis asks Rose to marry her and uh, even surprises himself. But they go through this and she says yes. And he walks onto that stage and he's loose and calm. Rose has kind of saved him. And he goes onto that stage and, and faces the crowd and yeah, and just rips, rips it up as soon as he gets out there. Thank you so much, Johnny, for that summary. Carly, what did you think of the opening pages? All right. So I find this opening really interesting with the first paragraph. So the first paragraph, you kind of jammed in the timestamp like into the first paragraph. I would let that breathe, but I think it's a little bit confusing because you have Memphis 1955 and then the next words are during the depression. So then I'm like, there was no depression in the fifties, right? So then, you know what I mean? Like you're making the reader have to think a little bit there. So while I love the timestamp, I don't know if we need this little summary of the myth. I don't know. It's because number one, it reads synopsis like, because you were literally summarizing a myth, right? So I was like, okay, we have a timestamp, but then we're jumping to the depression. It felt like you were really skipping over a lot of this myth. The writing was really good, but then all of a sudden again, we're like flipping to first person because then we're like, oh, is he the, you know, is he the man who went through like this myth? No. Okay. We're not sure. And then you're into first person. I think of these crossroads backstage, right? And then you're going into first person. So I don't know. I'm pretty hesitant to be like, to commit to saying like, I think that works. I don't think it works. Does it completely not work? No. I think you just have some things you need to think about in terms of what your goal is by setting the tone with the myth. 
Next, I like the fact that his interiority, I'm sure Cece was going to say this, that his interiority was really counteracting some of his dialogue, which I think was great. You know, he's not ready to go on stage and like feeling really nervous. And then he says, you're ready to put a show on tonight. And then Elvis says, we think we will, sir. You know, in terms of like, not a super confident answer, but he's not like, I'm shaking in my boots, you know? So I thought that was, I thought that was really nice there. I do think we need a countdown in terms of the ticking clock. You go on in 20 minutes, you go on in five minutes like whatever you imagine the ticking clock to be has to be in there for a number of reasons which we'll build into with the love scene because we need to we need to be like when is it going on you know like we're an audience member you know so I think also you have on I think this is the second page of text he says why on God's green earth do you dress like that young man and then Elvis says you haven't noticed I shrug cocky girls like it and then I think you need a line break or a paragraph break to like emphasize girls like it because then you're going to like a force a friendly smile on him no we just I think you cut the rest of that and you end on girls like it you know line break I think you need to kind of punctuate that there and just kind of lean into that moment the other thing is you kept talking about his jaw aching in terms of like the work his jaw has to do with a smile I don't know about you but when I have to smile a lot it's my cheeks doing the work because in terms of gravity our our jaw is down here our cheeks are doing the lifting right so I think it's more like his cheeks are sore I don't really unless he's doing a smile that I don't understand that's a very like Elvisy smile and you did research and you know that's how Elvis smiles but I feel like it's the gravity right it's like this piece so then I would think like this would be doing the aching but again I leave that to you and your research. I'm a little bit confused about, again, why he's not getting on stage faster. But then again, I understand it's like, oh, we're waiting for Rose to come on. They're going to have their love scene. And that's why we're kind of waiting. But again, I think that ticking clock will help us to be like, oh, he is on in five. As the reader, we are now a viewer of the concert. So we need that that ticking time clock there. I think that would help. And then in terms of, in terms of technicalities, so when industry professionals talk about love scenes we have to literally break down the mechanics of a love scene so romance editors know this romance agents do this because we're just like is that the way that things work in real life because we're always trying to be like is real life reminiscent of how it's in fiction i don't believe that this love scene would happen this way and there's a couple reasons again the timing do we feel like there is a ticking clock are they enjoying the fact that there's a ticking clock or they're just like we have all night we'll make the girls wait or is Elvis like I have to get onto this show therefore like let's get this done and then the laying down backstage like there's not a lot of room backstage right so wouldn't it be a bit more of a like up in a corner situation so as I said people who work in romance novels feel comfortable talking about the mechanics of romance and so I feel like you we need to we need to unpack the like logistics of this literal scene and then for my last notes because you pitch this as an alternate history nothing in these five pages feel alternate all of this feels realistic and so if you're gonna pitch me something where the entire hook is based on the alternate I think we need a wink or a nod or whether it's like that magical something like some I don't know I just need to know somewhere in these five pages how alternate this is or a wink or a nod to where we're going in terms of that alternate history. Okay, I think that's all my notes. Cece, did you have any notes before we jump to Johnny? Yeah, Carly, you were right. I did highlight a whole bunch of parts where he was pretending and I was like, I love that he's pretending because it just adds 
it just adds another layer, right? Like that's why we have interiority. There were a few lines that I also highlighted that I was like, I really like these lines. There was something about the storm in her eyes. She can see the storm in me. That's what it was. And I was like, that is a beautiful line. I I really like that. Questions I had, and I'm mindful that I, I'm not the audience for this book. So if if these are not questions that you want your reader to know, ignore me. Is he super sure that he's going to make it? Because he says he will to everyone that he's talking to. And in his head, he doesn't go any deeper. So I was wondering like certainty because visceral emotions can go a long way in the opening pages. And if he's terrified, I think that that would be more interesting. The question I feel like every writer should ask themselves is, what do I want my readers to be curious about? And you have a scene in an alternate history book featuring, you know, Elvis, who's obviously a star, being a star, which I think would be more the ending of the book and not the beginning of the book. Because if it's the beginning, then then great. I'm so happy for Elvis. Am I super curious? No, because I already know he's fantastic. The thing that could keep me curious, if you're like, no, no, I really want him to already be successful, would be the love story. It would be Rose. It would be, why does he love this woman? His I highlighted the, the sections for you so you can know exactly what I'm talking about. But right now, his framing of her, she exists because he loves her because she's beautiful. And he loves her because... She's a cure for his stage fright, which by the way, are great reasons to love someone, but I wanted even more. I wanted like other reasons that make Rose so special. And I wanted him to be thinking about his first love for one second, just to be like, I thought that was love, but this is love, like, or something else. I just mean to say that I'm not getting the depth that I needed to believe in this love story because that could be the entryway into curiosity that we need because when he loses her and he has to go, you know, fight for her, that could keep me hooked since the, the rock star element isn't going to since he's already a star. Some things to think about. But now, again, handing it over to you. Yeah. Thank you for that very good feedback there. I wanted to start there. I, I just wanted to. So my idea of it is that he's an up, up and comer star. He's like the next star. He's not there yet. And then after the show, this is basically the the foot of the coals that he's standing at. And then after the show, he the rock and roll element completely falls apart and he is, I just wanted to kind of give the reader an idea of what he, what it is, what it, what he was looking at becoming in Memphis. And then the very next scene, it's going to go downhill and he's going to get raked over the coals consistently for basically the entire book until he picks himself up. So that's kind of why I wanted to position, you know, just have a very happy scene, pull the reader into the fight, give them uh, you know, kind of a, an idea of what he's going to be, what he has and what he's going to be missing when, when he enters the next part of this book. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of like, I can see that's what you worked on doing. But yeah, I worry it's like, when you say that, I think the issue is just that because Elvis is such a well-known character. If this was anybody else, then it was like, oh, I would need to know kind of the background for this character. But I think you, like, he is literally a global beloved icon. And so I think you have to, in this case, assume a certain level of understanding from the reader in terms of if they are to read a book, again, in alternate history, why aren't we starting with him, you know, hat in hand? Do you know what I mean? As opposed to at a point where he is culturally and globally known even if this is the moment before he takes off i don't know i think i as i said i understand from like a structural point of view but i just think from like a cultural point i think that's what makes this tricky i don't understand from a structural point of view you don't start with happy happy is boring you start with interesting you have this global icon who is going to go on a manhunt it's going to be like a taken situation from your query letter 
I want to be curious. I don't want to see the, the, the happy scene unless I get curiosity seeds about the future. And right now you have a man going on stage, knowing he's great, knowing he's going to make it, knowing he's being ripped off, okay with being ripped off because he knows he's so great. And then he's actually great and like great, but it's not curiosity inducing. So I don't get it from a structural point of view. What if he doesn't know he's getting ripped off and Rose is the one that figures out that he's being ripped off? And in the scene, I don't know, something to do with like Rose knowing he's getting ripped off and therefore she helps him in the fight. Do you know what I mean? Like that they can join the fight together in that sense, like giving her a little bit of something to do. If you have a protagonist always in control, you fall into the arrogant win trap. And then again, for me, I don't get curious, but it could be a CZ thing. It's possible that there are many books out there that I don't read where the men are doing all the wonderful things and winning and being great and knowing they're being great. I think that if you were at to add these layers, he can still be great, but he should be surprised about something. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I agree. Totally. Johnny, do you have any questions for us or any other thoughts? I guess you, you covered a lot of the answers, a lot of the answers in from my questions, just in your kind of summaries. And, and one of them, you know, I asked, I was going to ask about, do you, do you see it an issue with, you know, writing about Elvis? I'm not going to be, you know, in terms of just legal and IP related issues, there's not going to be any lyrics. There's, there's some, there's like, you know, as you see, there are some songs, there's some performance, but there's no real mention of the song. So yeah, I guess just, do you see an issue with that? No, because he's a public figure and any information that you could get from him, you can find in public places or through interviews. Therefore, it's more just if it was like, libelous or slanderous in that capacity and again like you know you have to look into that but you're not like hey elvis is the devil and like i don't know a climate apologist and you know what i mean it's not like you're like running his name through the mud in terms of that sense you're just taking information biographical details is and the big thing as you know obviously is the lyrics yeah yeah and i guess you know i could just in terms of the opening scene my my initial scene that i was going to open up with was Elvis on a freight train, his life in ruin. That was going to be the opening scene. And then, you know, I just kind of wrote this scene later. And I just said, let's just maybe we'll just try this, maybe go back in time a little bit to what, what it used to be like. And and then I just, yeah, I, I decided to go with it. But so, I mean, I can definitely, I think maybe, you know, you mentioned that you might not be starting in the right section in terms of the paragraph, but could also be the case where, you know, maybe we start later down the road, down the rail line. Yeah, I I do like that better. I mean, for the number of reasons that CC touched on as well. I do think potentially starting on the rail line would be interesting because even if it's as simple as, again, don't know what the scene that you created, but it's like, he's in a rail car. We know his name is Elvis and he just sold his guitar. Or do you know what I mean? Like just the combination of those three things with jacket copy, you know, with the query letter, that's enough really for us to just make the mental connection between like, this is Elvis what about him do we know? And if this is an alternate history, what about him do we not know, right? And we're on a curiosity train, literally, like on a, on a route somewhere in terms of a direction where we're going to learn more. So I have a feeling that would potentially be a much stronger opening. But again, it kind of depends because it's so hard when we don't have the full book and we're just going on a little sample. Johnny, any final questions for us before we wrap up? No, I guess uh, I, I don't. No, thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of lot of fun being on here. It's very weird to see you guys face to face, you know, after listening to you for, for some time. So 
Well, thank you so much for being brave and putting yourself out there and sharing your work with us. It not only is, you know, something we can do for you, but also to all the listeners. So you're doing a huge service to the literary community by by coming on and, and sharing your words. So we wish you all the best. We hope we hear great news about this project. And we just, yeah, we hope you find great success. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. and We have bilingual friends and francophone friends, so it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously, and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday, the 11th of May, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. 
Today's repeat guest is the author of five novels, the number one international bestseller, Recipe for a Perfect Wife, Come Away With Me, a Globe and Mail Best Book of 2015, Globe and Mail and Toronto Star bestsellers, The Choices We Make and In This Moment, and The Life Lucy Knew. She is also the author of The 4% Fix, How One Hour Can Change Your Life. An award-winning journalist, Karma has been published in Self, Red Book, and Today's Parent, among others. She lives just outside Toronto with her husband, daughter, and a labradoodle named Fred. It's my pleasure to welcome Karma Brown. Karma, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. I'm so happy to be here today. I'm always happy to have you on the show. We loved Recipe for a Perfect Wife, which we got to chat to you about, among others. And and today, for our listeners, we get to chat about Karma's latest book, which is called What Wild Women Do. And just a bit of a, just to give you a tiny overview of the story, an aspiring contemporary screenwriter, a 1970s socialite turned feminist, and the camp in the woods that ties their stories together forever. In this number one internationally best selling author Karma Brown's new novel about ambition, betrayal, and the wildness that exists in all of us. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Before we start talking about the book, Karma, which I loved, 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 we need to talk about the photograph of you with the chickens. The photograph of me with the chickens. Right. I'm about five years old in that picture. For anyone who is not obviously not looking at it right now, but I am wearing these denim jeans that have been embroidered. My mom used to embroider patches and flowers and other things on all of my denim. It was 1977 you know, or so. And I basically have a rooster under each arm and a very determined look on my face. And I'm a bit of a ragamuffin because I lived on a farm and it was the 70s. My hair is a little disheveled, but it's the look of determination on my face that actually always makes me laugh. And I, you know, I'm like, where was I going with these chickens? My parents are like, we, who knows, but this was a regular, a regular thing on the farm. <laughs> I absolutely love it. It's like, so this for our listeners, it's sort of on the dedication page. It's unusual to get your publishers to be able to do that because photographs, printing is expensive and any kind of illustrations in a book, they sort of bulk against because it ups production costs, but it is absolutely perfect. It looks like Karma has packed these chickens as purses under her arms and she's leaving home. So if for nothing else, get the book for this picture. It's incredible. Okay. So before we start breaking it down, Karma, can you take us through the inspiration for this? Because for me, what always inspires me is how authors of your caliber who have written so many books still come up with these new ideas that they're so passionate about, new themes they want to explore. And for me, the genesis of the idea is always so fascinating. Yeah, this one went through so many different iterations. After Recipe, I knew that I wanted to write another book that had feminist themes that was a dual timeline story. But I also didn't have this idea that had formed yet. And so initially, this book was about two identical twins and one of them takes the other one's life after that one dies. And it was like this weird thriller. And I, I mean, I, I never really wrote it. I just wrote a synopsis and I was like, oh, maybe this is the book. Of course, that wasn't the book, but <laughs> it was a very strange way to go. And then I had another story about a woman in the two timelines, same woman and how she was sending letters back and forth to herself 50 years apart. And then I was like, yep, this is the book. This is the book. I wrote a synopsis. We 
pitched it to my editors. And there was some concern about the magical realism because that's hard to, you know, to put into a story. And then I couldn't figure out how to get the letters like in the mailbox, like what's happening over this time frame. So that one went. And it just, it took, I mean, probably a year of trying, writing all these different synopses and trying to figure out what I wanted the story to be. And I had Rowan first. She's the modern day protagonist, the screenwriter. And I knew I wanted to put her in an isolated place with her relationship, dealing with all the things you have to deal with when you have been isolated and you're struggling to find your way. And with Eddie, I just, I have such a fond memories of my idyllic 1970s childhood. And as much as there was a lot going on at that time, and it was very fraught, there's also a simplicity to that era. And I wanted to just go back and I wanted to spend some time in that place. And so Eddie arrived in my brain and I knew that I had found my protagonists. And then I like to make my settings feel like another character. So the woods really, I really leaned into the Adirondacks becoming sort of this third character in this triangle, of, you know, the woods and these two, these two women on this self-discovery journey. So yeah, it went all over the place, Bianca. It was it was everywhere, and then it was nowhere, and here we are. I love that because there's there's a lot to unpack there because that's part of the creative process. And as writers, we get so frustrated when we spend time with something because we are not earning money when we are not publishing, right? You've got to publish a book to be able to earn money. And so when you spend a year with what feels like hitting constant dead ends, it can feel very creatively frustrating as if we've wasted time. But, you know, for our listeners, this is all part of the creative process. We are not accountants. We are not auditors. We do not sit with spreadsheets. And the creative process is often messy, like super messy. So I'm encouraged to hear that Karma goes through this as well. And I'm really happy for Karma that she is a plotter. She said before on the podcast that she's a major plotter. I'm a pantser. So what happens is I write half of that damn book each time before I realize it's not working. So so can we talk a bit about how it actually helps to outline to realize that that book is not the book for you during the outlining process? Yeah, I mean, I always say this, that I don't think it matters if you're a plotter or a pantser. At some point in the journey of writing this book, you will be sitting there realizing that you have a big problem. You have a big plot hole. You don't know how to get out of it. And so if you're a plotter, and I and I am somewhere between the two, I do a lot of upfront work, like a lot. And then I sort of push that to the side and I start writing. But I can't write until I have those things mostly figured out. And then I allow myself the creativity to make it different if it feels right, because there's an instinct to writing too, which is hard to explain. It just sort of happens. But I always have this framework. And so I have friends who are pantsers and they get like you halfway through a book and then they're like, uh-oh, like, uh-oh, this is, this is <laughs> really not happening. And so then there's a lot of angst and pain and frustration. I mean, I feel that too. I just feel it first. And so I have, you know, a half dozen 15 page synopses in a folder somewhere that are books that never made it past that very early stage, because I realized early on that there was a problem that maybe I just didn't know how to solve at that time, or I lost energy for figuring it out, like the mailbox with the letters going back and forth. I mean, it's been like three years. I still don't know how I would have done that. <laughs> but 
unlike you, I didn't write 20,000 words and then go, oh, wait, this isn't going to work. But I'm not saying one's better than the other. It really truly depends on who you are and how you work. But that is a benefit for me that I can see it early. Yeah. And and you know what? I know we've got listeners listening in now and going, well, but you guys have your agents and your editors who you can send the outline to, and they're going to be like, oh, we don't know that we can publish magical realism. And so that is one of the, the huge privileges of being published, of having an agent, of having an editor who you can run these ideas by, because I think that is a huge frustration for emerging authors, that they get this idea and they run with it, and they fully commit to it, and then at the end get told, oh, this is going to be difficult to market, etc. So, you know, I suppose at least we've got that safety net. But I do think there's a downside to that, actually. I, I, I think that there is no better time for an author than when she is alone with a project and has no expectations on her. So what Wild Women Do was the second book in a two-book deal, at least with my publisher in Canada. And so I had to produce a book that felt similar in themes to Recipe. And that was hard too, because I was trying to, you know, I, I could just didn't have this freedom to come up with any story. So as much as, I mean, I the magical realism part, I don't know how I would have done it. But if I hadn't had someone telling me, we don't think this is going to work, like they said, people do this, but it's hard to pull off. That doesn't mean I couldn't have done it, but I couldn't do it at that time because it was already, uh, this isn't going to work. So, you know, it's true that you do get that feedback and that can be really helpful, but it's also true that you are slightly constrained because of the expectations that are already living with this book. And I personally find that, I find that challenging. I like the freedom of just being with a story on my own and whoever I want to invite in early is up to me, you know? Yeah, Yeah, 100%. And this is actually why I don't do two book deals. And I get away with that because people know that I'm all over the place genre-wise, right? So I'll write something like literary fiction and then I write about witches and it's fantasy and then it's kind of back to whatever. And so I'm able to say, look, I don't know what my next book's going to be and I can promise you it's going to be in the same vein as this and it may not actually work out for you as a publisher. You're welcome to obviously to have first dibs on it, but it may not be the book for you. And for me to try and write the book that you want I I almost feel like we become like kids who are trying to please our teachers, right? Because one book worked. So we're like, okay, I want to kind of duplicate that success for you. But it really does curb your creative freedom a lot. Yeah. And I'm, I am very resistant to the author branding thing, probably to my own detriment. But like you, I mean, I just, I just keep writing different things because for me, it's the idea. It's the idea that I'm excited about. Sometimes it lines up and it fits with what I've written already. And sometimes it is completely different. And, you know, I, you don't always have a choice with these two book deals. Like, and I did not in that case, that was the, that was the offer that was on the table, but I definitely, my preference is to have freedom of space and creativity to write what I'm excited about. And my agent is a hundred percent on board with me. So we are always having these little, like, you know, sort of conversations about, Ooh, what I swear I could say, I would write anything. I could write anything. And she would just say, well, that's fantastic. Let's just see where that goes. So I'm grateful to her. Absolutely. For that. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm the same with Cece because I think a lot of agents would be frustrated with authors like us and we're lucky to have that support. And so for our listeners, when you get to that point, when you are published and you are being offered these two book deals, these are things we want you to keep in mind. You know, these are things to to plan ahead for. Maybe you're not at that point right now in your career, but definitely something to, to think about. Right. So back to this novel, comma, I really want to break down structure here because, you know, there's there's such control in terms of the structure and you've done this dual POV. So as Karma said, she's got Rowan who's a young woman in 2021. And then she's got Eddie, who's older in 1975. So we've got, you know, dual timelines, we've got dual POVs. And we say at the beginning of a story, you approach it like a house and you say, how am I going to enter this house? There's not just one way to enter a house, but as a writer up front, you've got to decide how you're going to enter the house and how you're going to build it up from the ground. And there's so many different styles you could do it in, but you you kind of have to commit to one. So there's some questions I want to unpack with Karma because we give certain advice on the podcast and I say, this is just to make your life easier. But when authors break these rules, I love it as well. And then I want to pick their brains about that too. So just to give you an idea about the structure, we start with five chapters with Rowan in 2021. Then we have an excerpt from a great camps book about Great Great Camp Calloway. And this is the setting that Karma said she wanted to be a character in the novel. And it was such an awesome setting. I want to go to this damn camp. You know, as kids in South Africa, we didn't have summer camp. We saw kids in American TV shows going to summer camp. We didn't have that. I want to go to this adult summer camp, firstly, because Karma just brought it to life so awesomely. And then we go back to Eddie's perspective in 1975, where we spend a chapter with her. So can you tell us a bit about when it came to structuring the story? Because what we generally say on the podcast, Karma, when people send in their query letters, is if you can have dual POV, do alternating chapters, because you don't want the reader to become too attached to one character and and then suddenly there's a POV switch. And you broke that rule. We have five chapters, then we have one, then we go back to Rowan. So can you speak a bit about those challenges and how you approached it and why you approached it in that way? Yeah, and it is. So when I started writing this book, my intention was to alternate every other chapter. Because like you said, it is an easy way to keep the reader interested in both characters, to not to get too settled into one storyline and then be you know, thrust into the next one. There's challenges doing that too, though, because you are bouncing between maybe, you know, definitely the the two POVs, but also potentially time eras, which is what was happening in this book. And in this case, I wrote all of Rowan's chapters first, which I've never done before, but for whatever reason, that felt like the right thing for me to do. Then I wrote all of Eddie's chapters, and then I started to look at putting them together. And I did initially do one and one and one and one and one and one, and it just didn't work. The flow wasn't there. I couldn't address enough of what had to, had to be addressed in each of their storylines. Like I needed you to spend a little bit of time with Rowan first to understand what's happening in her life before she gets to the Adirondacks. And it was five chapters and then, you know, we're, we're seeing 1975 and going from there. But it definitely isn't consistent. Like there'll be two chapters and three chapters and one chapter, however I did it. And really at that point, it was sort of like I did it on feel and I just started moving. I use Scrivener, which I don't know how anyone edits 
outside of Scrivener. Same. Because if you're moving stuff around, oh my gosh, the thought of doing that in Word or Google Docs or anything just is a nightmare. So on Scrivener, at least you can just move them, literally drag up and down so that one, and, and it took many, many, many rounds of edits to figure out the flow. I mean, I just messed around with that so much. It took a lot. And then there's epistolary elements in there with handbook pieces and some illustrations. And so it was figuring out what had to go where. It was complicated. Like it was complicated to do that. It's like working out a puzzle that you don't see the picture to. It's like someone's giving you a whole bunch of puzzle pieces and you're trying to assemble them and you haven't been told what the puzzle is supposed to look like. And, And that can be incredibly frustrating. But what I love here is that, you know, it was trial and error and that Karma realized very early on that doing the alternating POVs was not going to work for this particular story. So for our listeners out there, just because we say try and do that because it's going to make your life easier, doesn't mean that's the only way to do it. And each story is going to be different. And this worked so well with the story. It didn't feel like I was like, oh no, I've spent more time with Rowan, so I'm not interested in Eddie. You know, it just, it flowed very organically. Something that you're saying in terms of the epistolary form and, and, And what I loved here, so besides the excerpt from the Great Camps book, which I spoke about earlier, you have excerpts throughout from Camp Calloway's Wild Woman Handbook that Eddie has written. And I love how these source materials really help shape and structure the story so that the characters can kind of be in conversation with each other as the past reaches into the present because in most books when you have dual pov there's a point at which the two characters lives converge and you see them together on the page with this kind of story when you've got a modern day timeline and a timeline in the past that you can't do you can't have these two characters ending up on the page together but if rowan is reading things that eddie wrote then she's kind of in conversation with this past Eddie. So so can you speak a bit about that? And and again, how did you realize up front as you started outlining that you would need this? Or was it a case of going, how am I getting the past and the present to braid together? And this is why I need to do this. Yeah, well, I knew I needed to do it. And I and I had the benefit of of recipe for a perfect wife, which has a similar issue. Like you said, the characters can never live on the page together because they are from different times and uh, there's no time travel in any of my books. So I knew that I needed to add an element like that and like the cookbook from Recipe. But it took a while to figure out what it was. And then I remember having a conversation with my editors and my agent and, and I was saying, I just had this memory of the Moosewood cookbook, which is a cookbook from the 1970s. And it had these hand-drawn illustrations of like vegetables in the pages and a lot of like vegan, heavy plant-based stuff from the, you know, hippie days of the 70s. And I thought, oh, I love the idea of Eddie writing something for the women that are coming to this camp, kind of like a handbook for them that can feel like something they take home with them as a memory of their time there. And it can have some you know, some of her wisdom, it can have a couple recipes, she's hand drawn some things because she likes to sketch occasionally. So that's where it it finally came to be. And again, it was long after the first draft, you know, I, I wrote that first draft, and there was nothing in between, I knew that there was going to be something. So I had placeholders, but 
no clue what it was yet. And was just patient until we figured that out. But then once we had, once I started working with the idea of the handbook, it just all came together. You know, it was just that moment of like, oh, this is the right thing. This will fit in between and allow these women to be connected, even though they are not living in the same, in the same time period. Yeah. Yeah. And what you've said there resonates with me because it's, it's trusting the process. You know, we may not as, as authors have all the answers every step of the way, but you've got to trust that like your subconscious is going to deliver up something, or you've got to trust in yourself that you're going to be able to solve the problem. I mean, the book that I'm writing now is breaking my head. And there are so many times when I get to a point and I'm like, I have no idea how I'm actually going to fix this, but I will trust that I'm going to get there and it's going to be fixed down the line. And, you know, I think that's, again, another frustrating part of the creative process. But isn't it also one of the best that when you do figure out what that thing is, when it does come to you, I mean, I'm hoping that at one point, Karma, you're going to wake up at 3 a.m. and figure out the damn mailbox situation. (laughs) I hope so too. And, but you know what? I don't know. That one might be just too far beyond, but I think what you said about trusting yourself, that is the most important thing. And to know that you don't have to get it right the first time, like you can, I also don't edit as I go. That's just another rule I have for myself because I really believe that if I start editing before the whole story's done, I'm going to miss something. That is just truism that lives inside of me. I will miss something important about the story. I don't know my characters well enough yet to start telling them how to do things differently than how they first show up. But there is that sense of like, I mean, trust me, I, this was my, you know, ninth book and I still had many days where I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know how this is ever going to work. And that's coming from someone who plots and does a lot of work on character and character arcs and motivations and stakes before she even writes a word. But there would just be times where I was like, well, somebody better tell me, like, can someone just tell me what to do now? But then it's that, okay, you have to trust that you will figure it out. You have to trust yourself enough to find that rhythm of the story and to sort of wait for it, you know, to just... I, I, when I'm writing, I, I'm writing every day, usually when I'm drafting and I don't sit around and wait to feel creatively inspired. I just put my butt in my seat and get words down and they might be terrible, but they can be changed later. But I just sort of wait for that feeling of, okay, you've got this, you know, what has to come next. Just be patient with yourself. Just get the words down. I mean, I'm constantly telling myself this as I'm writing, which <laughs> I I think a lot of people do. Like it's, there is no, oh, there, if only there were a handbook. I mean, I think some people have written handbooks, but I'm not yeah. sure. Everyone's so different. So it's hard. But, but you know what? This kind of positive self-talk is so important because I think as writers, we allow the inner critic to speak louder than the positive self-talk. We have the inner critic being like, this sucks, you suck, these words are terrible. And I think we need to allow the cheerleader into the writing room and say, you know what, you've got this, I trust in you, you're going to figure it out and and let that voice kind of speak louder than, than the inner critic. Yeah. And I mean, I had a friend who was really struggling with a book recently and has been struggling for some time. And she would send me a note and be like, okay, well, 200 words. And they're like the worst words I've ever written, but they're there. And I was like, look, the only job 
of those first draft words is to exist. There is no other job for those words than to just exist on the page. You can fix them later. You can polish them later. I mean, if people saw first drafts of their favorite author's books, I think that they would be, would be an interesting exercise and no one will ever do that. But the amount of editing that happens in a story is really pretty significant. Yeah. And this is on your own. Then your agent still makes yes. edits. Then your editor still makes edits. And then they'll still edit you after that. So it really, really is a process. And I'm just going to echo what Karma said there. Scrivener has been a lifesaver for me because with this book that I'm writing, I have moved so many chapters around in terms of the order of things, which characters get to speak when. And the thought of doing it in a, in a Word doc is when the whole thing's in a linear way, I don't know how people do that, how they keep track of it. And the great thing with Scrivener is you can just keep moving things around for as long as you need to, as long as you're shuffling that puzzle. And Kam also just mentioned Google Docs. And I just feel like I need to say that I have read that there's a potential for data scraping to be happening if you are working in Google Docs. It depends on like the, the fine print in terms of what you're signing away when you use Google Docs. So if you don't want your work used to train AI to replace you one day, you know, I, I'm not saying this is absolutely the case. I do not want to get sued for this, but I did read an article that said that this was a concern. So definitely consider that as well. Karma, we've come to the end of our time. I've still got so many questions that we didn't get to tackle, but as always, it's such a wonderful, wonderful conversation with you. Thank you so much. For our listeners, we're linking to the book on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Go get it. Have a look at the amazing way Karma has structured this novel. Look at the epistolary forms for those of you that are, you know, writing these kinds of POV stories. And Karma, we can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much, Bianca. Nice chatting with you today. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, 
we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.